that one, 976, Ephesians 1. We're going to be looking at uh, a few of the different thoughts that are in this, in this wonderful chapter of God's Word. Um, our Presbyterian Church in America Book of Church Order proclaims the Lord Jesus Christ on its first page as the head of the church. It says, Jesus, the mediator, the sole priest, prophet, king, savior, and head of the church. And then it goes on to quote some of this very passage that we are looking at here. Jesus Christ is the king of the church, is the head of the church. And so we want to acknowledge him as, as that tonight and also look into some of the implications that we see uh, in this passage that is here for us. So let's read verses 15 to 23 now in Ephesians 1. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might." that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we do thank you for this passage of Scripture and we pray that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds by the power of your Spirit, that we would see, that we would be encouraged, that we would not go forth from this place unchanged, but that your Holy Word would change us, that your Spirit would change us, and that we would live in these practical ways, uh, in ways that please you and honor you in this world. And so we ask for your help now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Warren Wearsby tells the story of a very wealthy businessman. This is a true story. William Randolph Hearst, who was a, a businessman, philanthropist, and, and he also collected artifacts and artworks. He had tens of thousands of different artworks. And one time he read an article about a particular artwork, and he told his uh, agent, he said, I must have this piece of art. I have to get it. Scour all the galleries in this world and go find it. I don't care what it costs. I want it in my collection. And so several months passed by and this agent came back to him and said, uh, Mr. Hurst, you've owned this piece of artwork for several years. It's in your warehouse. He had the thing that he desired and yet many of us in our Christian lives can live the same way. We don't see all of the unsearchable riches in Christ that we have that are ours because we are in Christ. And so I want to explore some of those things that we have in Christ here tonight that we see in this particular passage. And in, in Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23, it's a prayer of the Apostle Paul. He's praying. It's a prayer of thanks. And it's a prayer of thanks that if we were to outline this particular passage, we would see in the first point, Paul's prayer of thanks for the Ephesian church. That would be point number one. And we see that in verses 15 
and 16, where Paul commends the church for their faith and for their love, for their love for one another. I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And so the Apostle Paul picks up these two distinguishing marks of what it means to be a believer in the Lord Jesus. To have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and to love God's people. He picks up on those things. That would be point number one, those two distinguishing marks of a believer. And then the second point with several different subpoints, would be found in verses 17 to 23. And we see Paul here praying for the Ephesian church that they would be able to comprehend and appreciate all that Christ has acquired for them, all that they have in the Lord. Because they are in Christ, all of these different things belong to them. And that would be sermon number one, if I was to preach that sermon tonight, but I'm not going to. There's a few other things that I wanted to get to that I thought were important, that are more uh, undergirding principles that we see in this particular passage here, uh, underlining emphasis, practical emphasis that we see here through some overarching principles that are before us in this particular passage. And this particular passage speaks to us about the preeminence and the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what do we mean by the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, we know of his humiliation, right? He was born of a virgin. He was born in like manner as we were into this world. He lived in this world. He suffered in this world. He died in this world. But there are four stages to Christ's exaltation. And they would be his resurrection. That would be stage number one in terms of his exaltation. Then his ascension into heaven. That would be the second stage. Third stage would be his seating at the right hand of God. And theologically, we call this Christ's session. Christ's session. Seated at the right hand of God. And then his glorious return is also part of his exaltation. He will come one day. He will return one day in triumph and in glory. And so here in this passage, we see the victorious, conquering, triumphant Christ displayed for us. The Christ who came and conquered the forces of darkness. And that is a theme that I want to pick up on here. And that he's conquered Satan. He's conquered the devil. And some of the implications that that means. And that's not explicitly mentioned here, but we do see some of these themes that are, that are built upon in this passage. And we see that that he has put all things under his feet. We see in verse 21 that far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. And so we can, we can draw upon this to see the defeat and the conquering of Satan and of death and so many other things through the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Satan is defeated. He's been dealt a death blow by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and then his subsequent resurrection. And so we see that in this world, Satan is still active. Now, why is he active? Why is God allowing that? Satan is still leading people in rebellion against God in this world. He is the God of this world who blinds the minds of unbelievers. And John says that the whole world is in the power or the sway of the evil one. And so he's active, he's powerful, and yet we still read passages like this where we see that he is conquered. 
that he is a devil who is chained, that he is a devil who has a leash, and God sometimes allows that leash to be drawn out quite far, and other times it's kept quite tight and quite close. So what does it mean to say that Christ is victorious over Satan? What does that mean for us? How should we think about that as we look forward to the day when he will be vanquished fully and completely in the, in the end, in the consummation of all things, where he will be defeated finally, where he and that chain will be thrown into the lake of fire. We look forward to that day. But what does it mean for us now? Well, it means a number of different things. Christ's victory on the cross, his victory over death, his resurrection, and his exaltation mean for us that Satan has been disarmed. That's point number one. Satan has been disarmed. He's lost some of his weaponry because of Christ's exalted state. And one of those weapons that he wields upon many of us is the weapon of fear. Fear. Many of us can be fearful of a lot of different things. We can be fearful in this life and it can be very debilitating for some of us. We can fear sickness. We can fear the government. We can fear what's going to happen to our children as they're raised in this world. What's going to become of them as we look around us and see things that seem to be slipping at such a high rate. Now, fear can be a good thing. If you are hiking in the Rocky Mountains, you should have a healthy fear of grizzly bears or cougars. And that's a good thing. And don't wear one of those bells on your, on your backpack. That's called a dinner bell. Uh, That's going to alert them you're in the area and you might have an encounter you don't want with some of them. But fear can be a good thing, but fear, as we know, can be a very debilitating thing. It can be something that causes us to be upset, to be tossed to and fro in this world, and it is the opposite of peace, which we have by living a life of faith and trust. And so I want to ask you, the decisions that you make in your life, are they fear-based Are they faith-based? Are they leading you to a place where you are tossed to and fro, where you feel upset in this world? Or are your decisions leading you to a place of peace? That you're acting in faith. Even though things might be crumbling around you, we can still have that peace that passes all understanding. But many people in this world, perhaps some of us here, are afraid of death. Death. And that is something that is picked up on in the Scriptures. And we see that talked about in the book of Hebrews, which I believe was written by the Apostle Paul. And here it says that Christ came. He took on a human nature. He was born in like manner as we were. And he had a physical body. And that body actually died. And then that body was raised again. And he's exalted. And he's conquered death. And Hebrews 2.14 says that it would be through death that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. That's Hebrews 2.14. When Christ was raised from the dead, he conquered death, and in conquering death, he conquered the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Lifelong slavery to the fear of death. Many people live their life in fear of death. And as Christians, we don't need to. We can embrace these realities that one day we will die and we will be absent from the body and present with the Lord. And that will be a great, great occasion. 
We will be with the Lord of glory. And so we don't need to fear this as countless people do in this age in which we live, enslaved to the fear of death. So Christ conquered death. He stripped that weapon from Satan's hands. We don't need to fear death. We don't have to be afraid of that. You no longer have to fear death. You no longer have to fear anything. We don't need to live lives of fear. We can live lives of faith. And so you no longer have to fear this death. Who can separate you from the love of Christ? Nothing can. Nothing can. Because you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. So the fear of death has been removed. The second weapon that we see removed from Satan's hands is the weapon of accusation. Satan, the accuser of the brethren, who wants to point out all of our faults and all of our flaws and all of those things that we do that are wrong and are contrary. And we accuse ourselves so often, don't we? Guilt, shame, all of these different ways in which we can, we can speak into our own minds and ears. But Christ takes all of this away. And you see in the book of Revelation, you get this interesting vision that we see here. Um, and some believe this to be a reference to the death and the resurrection of Christ. It's found in Revelation 12, beginning at verse 9. And in this vision, John sees this. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. We don't have to listen to the lies of Satan. When he reminds us of those things that we've done in our past, as has been said, we can remind him of his future in the lake of fire that he will be thrown in there and be dispelled forever and ever on that great day. So he is the accuser of the brethren. And all of his accusations are false. They're baseless. They're meritless. They're false in the sense that they've all been dealt with on the cross of Christ. If you are seated here as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of your sins, past, present, and future, have been dealt with. Satan can't accuse you anymore. All the guilt and shame that you feel has been done away with on the cross of Christ. And so we need to feast. We need to feed on the promises of God and look to the cross and not look to ourselves. When we look to ourselves and our failures, we will be overcome by those things. When we look to the cross of Christ, remind ourselves of the great benefits we have in the gospel, that Christ has dealt with all of our guilt and shame, we can be encouraged. Yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I deserve God's rightful wrath. But yes, Christ died for me. Christ died for every one of those sins. The blood of Christ has covered over all of those sins and I'm now robed in His righteousness. Isn't that amazing? That we can stand, that we can rush into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God and talk to God and receive God's grace in our lives. Who can lay a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it that's going to condemn? It's Christ who was crucified, who was raised, and who's even at the right hand of God. And what is he doing there? 
He's pleading our case. He's interceding for us. He ever lives to intercede for us, to make intercession for us. He's, he's the advocate that we have. The accuser has been cast down, thrown down, and Christ has been raised up and elevated to the heavenly uh, throne that is rightfully his. He is our advocate, seated at the right hand of God, interceding for you. So Satan has been disarmed. Fear and accusation have been taken away. And the second way that Christ's victory, that we see Christ's victory over Satan is that Satan has been humiliated by the cross of Christ. Think about this. Christ has been raised from the dead and now he's far above all other powers. Everything is subject to him. He's reigning and ruling over all things. Satan and his spiritual forces have been humiliated. So Paul says in Colossians 2, when he speaks about Jesus Christ, that in his death he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Open shame. Satan thought that by rousing up uh, this crowd to riot and call for Christ to be crucified, that he would win the day. Satan thought that when, when Jesus Christ died on that cross, that he was winning. And yet he was working his own demise. In God's wisdom, as Satan sought to destroy Jesus, he was actually working his own destruction. He was working his own humiliation as he sought to humiliate Jesus on the cross. And so this is God's wisdom. That the enemy of Christ who sought to do his worst work God turned into the best work, the cross work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in so doing, he humiliates Satan. And the third area that we see, we see that Satan has been disarmed in these ways. We see he's humiliated. And then we also see this third point, that Satan has been bound. He's been subjugated. He is underneath. Now, what do we mean by that? Because we see that he's still active in this world. What does it mean that Satan is bound? Well, again, he's on a leash. It's God's leash. God's dictating the terms. Satan can do nothing else other than what God gives him allowance to do in this world. And we see that in verse 22 of Ephesians 1, we see that God has put all things under his feet. I heard that in ancient times when, a, when one uh, country was to vanquish or, or uh, conquer another country that that particular king would be brought to the king of that country and he would place his foot on his neck as a symbolic thing that he is conquered and that's what Christ does and we see that all the way back in Genesis 3:15 don't we that the satan the serpent of old would would bruise his heel and yet Christ would crush his head he's finished he's done so Satan has been bound. And in Mark 3, we see that interesting account that Jesus gives about binding the strong man. And what he means by that is that, is that in order for him to reign and rule, the strong man has to be bound. And Satan has taken territory. He's taken things that are not his. And so Christ says that he binds the strong man, that he must be bound first. And then we can pillage. We can plunder because of what Christ has done. What does that mean? There's tons of implications of that. Just quickly, it means that we have freedom in Christ. We have freedom to walk in the power of the Spirit. And secondly, it means that we have power in Christ. We have that resurrection power. We see that in Ephesians 19 and 20, 
What is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places? Resurrection power is ours. Power to walk in the power of the Spirit to walk in ways that please the Lord. And then thirdly, we see that we have also a mission in Christ that we can take back that territory that was given up to Satan because of what Christ has done. As God's people, we can advance the gospel. Christ said before he ascended in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We can advance in his power. He says he's conquered the evil one. He's found and he's bound the strong man. And so all authority in heaven and on earth is His. And so now we can go and we can advance the gospel and we can make disciples. And later on in Ephesians, Paul talks about the armor of God and we see that in chapter 6. So being strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, we should put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Having that armor upon us and waging war. We see this battle imagery throughout. We see that, that uh, the Lord is the one who is strong and mighty. The Lord mighty for battle. The Lord of hosts is His name. This battle imagery that we see woven throughout the Scriptures. And this is a battle that we are to take part in. That we are to wage war, spiritual warfare in this world. And one of the ways that we could work this out is that we are to stand, we're to re- resist the devil and he will flee from us. And so when we feel ourselves being filled with anger and when we are unforgiving, when we are bitter, we can look to passages like Ephesians 4.26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. When we are bitter and anger, angry and unforgiving, we are giving the devil a foothold. And so we need to shut that door. We need to keep it closed. We need to keep short accounts with God and with other people. And we're to do this not so just that we can feel better about ourselves, so that we can have better relationships with those around us. It's this that Satan does not get a foothold and do more damage than he's already done. We are to wage war in this way and not to give the devil an opportunity, this foothold, so that the work of Christ in our families, the work of Christ in our relationships, the work of Christ in this church can advance without hindrance. And so when you give in to sin, you give the adversary a foothold. And so don't allow that door to be cracked open. Slam it, keep it shut. And don't crack it. Resist him firm in your faith and he will flee. Another implication, when you are enduring suffering, that's also spiritual warfare. Those who are watching at home tonight and who are are sick are in a spiritual battle. If you've been sick, you know that spiritual battle. That wages war within us in our minds. Those battles of discouragement. Those temptations where it's easy to look to ourselves and look away from the Lord to feel sorry for ourselves, to not remember the promises that we have inherent to us in the gospel. But in 1 Peter 5, 7, Peter here is talking to a church that is under persecution and he says, cast all your anxieties on God because he cares for us. 
Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. Peter says, you are suffering right now. And it's hard, it's difficult, it is a trial. And this is the way that you are to deal with it. Stand firm. Resist the temptation. Resist the temptation to complain and to murmur. Resist the temptation to look away from Christ and look to yourself. Endure the suffering by casting all of your anxieties upon Him. If you take it upon yourselves, you're playing into the devil's hands. You're giving him a a foothold. If you look to Christ, you are disarming Him. When you preach to yourself the promises of God, you are disarming Him. When you feast and feed on the Word of God, you are disarming Him. When you feast and feed on the Lord's table, you are gaining strength and disarming Him. When you come gathered together as God's people, gaining encouragement from one another, you are disarming Him in all of these different ways. And so my final encouragements to you are these, to remember whose you are. Remember whose you are. You are in Christ, the Lord of glory, the one seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for you. He's reigning, He's ruling, He's subduing all of His and our enemies in His time. You are His and He is yours. And as He is yours, remember what you have. Remember what you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be like that rich man who forgot that he had this prized possession. Don't live that way. That is the way that some Christians live their Christian lives. They don't remember, they don't forget if they ever knew. They don't feast and feed on the promises that we see here. They don't see, they're fearful, they're not understanding, or they're forgetting. And so, if you are forgetting tonight, I want to remind you, I want to go back in this passage and I want to encourage you with some of the things that are part of the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is just some of them. There's a myriad of other ones. I think it's going to take all of an eternity to unpack all of them. But here's just a sampling of some of them. Because you are in Christ, you are blessed. Go all the way back to verse 3 in our passage. You are blessed. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You are blessed. You are chosen, verse 4. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. You are holy and blameless, also verse 4, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Positionally righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are predestined, verse 5. You are adopted into God's family as His sons and His daughters. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons. You are accepted in the Beloved, verse 6. He has blessed us in the Beloved. You are accepted. You are redeemed, verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood. You are forgiven, verse 7. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. You are enlightened to know the mystery of the Gospel. Verse 8 and 9. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ. You are given a great inheritance, verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. Again, the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
You are sealed, verse 13, in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You are assured, based on that sealing, based on that promise, you are assured, verse 14, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Just a small sample of the unsearchable riches of Christ that are yours because you are in Christ. And so remember whose you are, that you are in Christ, and remember what you have. It's all safe and secure. It is all seated at the right hand of God in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as secure as Christ is in His session at the right hand of God, that is how secure all of these inheritances of yours are. So that's why Paul, after spending the first three chapters unfolding some of these great themes and truths for us, he breaks out into doxology in verse 20 and 21 of chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, you truly are amazing. You truly do bless us so greatly in the person of our Lord Jesus. Lord, just help us. Help us to look to Christ in our times of trial and suffering. Help us to feast and feed on the unsearchable riches. Help us to meditate on great passages like these that remind us of all that is ours in Christ and help us to be encouraged as we walk in this world for your glory's sake. Amen.